0: Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me, as always, is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Wednesday, July 27th, and we're looking ahead at a busy, impactful month of primaries. Joining us on the show today to help us do that is Nathan Gonzalez, the editor and publisher of Inside Elections. We were there with 99% of the
1: precincts counted.
2: Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look...
1: House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation.
0: From Washington, this is Bloomberg
2: Government's Down Ballot Counts. But first up, Greg has a Juros gem. That's right, Giroux's gem for this episode is 94. That's the number of U.S. Senators currently serving who belong to the same political party as the presidential nominee who carried their states in the most recent White House election. Put a different way, just six of the 100 senators are either Democrats from states Donald Trump carried in 2020, or Republicans from states that Joe Biden won in 2020. This is an extraordinarily high level of straight ticket voting that really shows just how much presidential and Senate election results move in partisan tandem. In the early 1990s, only about half of the Senate seats were held by the party that won the 1988 presidential election. There are three Republicans from Biden states Susan Collins of Maine, who was reelected in 2020, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, who's not seeking re-election on November the 8th, and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who's been targeted for defeat by Democrats because he is the only Republican senator seeking re-election from a state that voted Democratic for president, Wisconsin Democrats will choose their nominee against Johnson on August the 9th. The Pennsylvania seat Toomey is giving up also stands out as a top prize for Democrats who are defending the narrowest possible majority in the Senate. That marquee race pits Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman against Republican Mehmet Oz, a doctor and television personality. The three Democratic senators from states Trump won in 2020 are all up for re-election in 2024. Joe Manchin of West Virginia, John Tester of Montana, and Sherrod Brown of Ohio. Thus, there is no Democratic senator from a state Biden lost in 2020 who's up for re-election on November the 8th. But with Biden's approval rating sagging barely 100 days ahead of the midterm election, some Democratic senators from mildly pro-Biden states face tough re-elections. They include Raphael Warnock from Georgia, Mark Kelly in Arizona, and Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada. We'll know soon whether they can put enough political distance between themselves and Biden if the president remains unpopular. And that's your Giro's gem.
0: All right. Up next, we'll bring on Nathan Gonzalez.
1: This is Bloomberg Governments. Down ballot counts.
0: Joining us now is Nathan Gonzalez, who reports on, analyzes and handicaps races at inside elections. One of the most trusted nonpartisan political newsletters there is. Nathan, welcome back. Hey, always a pleasure, Always only for you guys,
1: only it's a a special occasion.
0: (laughs) It is very special, and it's also special because of what's about to come. We've got a big month of primaries starting next week, Uh, and we'll get to that soon, but I want to start more big picture, uh, if that's cool. Um, You've covered a couple midterms in your day, right? Republican and Democratic presidents. And I was just wondering, thematically and practically, is this one kind of shaping up any differently than the past ones or is it kind of falling in line?
1: Well, for a while it has, for most of the cycle, it has felt like a typical midterm election, but I will, uh, if we're treating this like a therapy session, I admit that this is the time of the cycle where I kind of start to freak out a little bit that like, what, what if it's all wrong, right? Like uh, there's been so much evidence and data that has been pointing toward that typical midterm election, but now we're getting a little bit of other, you know tidbits here and there like oh what if you know herschel walker isn't up to the task or or what if jd vance isn't going to run a campaign or just uh, why is the generic ballot um kind of detached from president biden's job approval rating and so you know it, it starts to make me second guess a little bit but then i have to sort of take a deep breath and remind myself that there's still you know a few months before the election and these next few weeks are going to be critical, not just because of the primaries that we'll talk about. But this is really when the candidates, the, the campaign committees, the outside groups, everyone is going to be going into the field to take the temperature, to pull a lot of these races and really get actual data on what's happening. And so I, I feel like the picture is going to be more clear even over the next month than what we have now. But but in general, I'm still expecting uh, Republicans to do well. Uh, I think it's just a, a measure of how well are they going to do. As we've talked about uh, for months now, I think Republicans have a, a great opportunity to win back the House. It does feel like the House is easier Uh, They only need a net gain of four seats now after the special election in Texas. Our current projection is a Republican gain of between 12 and 30 seats. And then in the Senate, Republicans only need a net gain of one. Our current projection is Republican net gain of one to three. But the Senate is, I I think, by any objective measure, uh, more competitive for control than what the House is right now.
0: You mentioned that range uh, in the House of between twelve and thirty seats, and that that seems to reflect the sort of relative uncertainty we're we're in right now um but the other like the number that sticks out to me there isn't the twelve it's the thirty um given that this looks like such a good year for Republicans um I was wondering why that's about half what they got in twenty ten you know what's capping that
1: I think there's a, a few things you know thirty is act- is first of all right about it was right on the historical average for a president's party losing house seats going uh, in a midterm going back a century so 30 is right on target we have to remember that republicans gained 12 seats in 2020 i think that they uh, already took over some of the low hanging fruit and and ate into or maybe cannibalized some of their 2022 gains with those 2020 gains and then redistricting uh, there were a couple of states where republicans either strategically or the legal pressure, um, uh, they weren't as aggressive as what they could have been. They weren't as aggressive in Texas as probably what they could have been. They sort of gave Democrats some, uh, a couple solid seats so that they could have their own solid seats. So they, I think that limited uh, Republican uh, kind of this, this range right now. But the... Uh, <laughs> But there, there is a lot, that uncertainty that we were talking about at the beginning, there's just, we don't know how deep the vulnerabilities go for Democrats right now. And we're, we're hopefully going to find out uh, here pretty soon.
2: And Nathan, could you explain for our listeners, why is the House a much tougher hold for Democrats can, than the Senate? And uh, as unlikely as it sounds, is there any scenario under which Democrats could hold both chambers of Congress?
1: Well, we, we should always be open-minded. I think hopefully we've all we've all learned over the last few cycles that, sure, it is technically possible that Democrats hold both the House and the Senate. It's just unlikely right now uh, that specifically this cycle, Republicans have a good chance because they only need that net gain of four out of 435. I mean, that is a minuscule number, uh, particularly in the face of President Biden's uh, mediocre to poor job approval rating. Uh, yeah, but the other bigger picture, the, the trend that applies across multiple cycles, is that House races tend to fall more in line with the national mood or partisanship or environment uh, because there is it is more difficult for House races and candidates to distinguish themselves from whatever the national mood is or, again, the partisanship of that district. You know, there are only, I believe, just short of two dozen seats in the House that are represented by a a member uh, that that voted for the other party's presidential nominee in 2020. I mean, there's just an extreme alignment on on how a state votes from a partisan perspective. And so it takes a a lot of money or political agility to overcome that trend. And most candidates, uh, either incumbents or challengers, can't uh, don't have the, the skills or the resources to to pull that off.
0: All right, I've got one more question before we dive into August specifically. Um, I was looking uh, at your newsletter, and you rate seven Senate races right now in competitive categories, kind of between the lean Republican and lean Democrat. Um, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, and Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, all Democrats. Uh, those are rated as toss-ups, and and they're the most vulnerable incumbents. Um, those do all seem like they could be two-point races somewhere in there. Um, but Warnock and possibly Kelly will be going up against first-time candidates, and you mentioned Herschel Walker um, before. But so those seem a little bit more volatile than Nevada. But I have a my question is almost broader than that. Are are the races you think unique enough that they could go different ways, or is this the kind of environment in which um, they'll all tip the same way.
1: Uh, I think that a majority of the races will go one way. Um, you know, and right now, even though the polling current polling doesn't necessarily reflect it, uh, I think that uh, a majority of those vulnerable senators will lose, but there will probably be a, a survivor. Now which one, which one is that? Uh, I'm not sure quite yet. But part of that uncertainty that I was trying to relay early on in our in our conversation was that, these Democratic incumbents and even some House Democrats are currently running well ahead of Biden's uh, position in their district or in their state. And that is giving Democrats some confidence that they say, OK, our our senators or our incumbents can have their own brand. They're, they're doing a good job of, of having that distance and voters are looking at them differently. But in my mind, I think that that gap is going to close. Um, that that over the next few months, they are going to be weighed down by that Biden number. For those of you, uh, those of you who are listening and haven't read uh, Nathaniel Rakich at 5:38, uh, who used to do some work for us at Inside Elections, uh, just wrote a great piece trying to explain the the difference that gap between the Biden number and the generic ballot. But at the very end of the piece, it points out that the the trend in recent midterms is that the the party, the president's party, um, tends to decrease uh, on the generic ballot or the generic ballot gets worse for the president's party as we get closer to election day. It may not get all the way down to where Biden is because uh, that would be a huge <laughs> that would be a, a huge gap. But going back to those Democratic senators, they're strong, right? I mean, they're doing they're raising money. They're doing everything they need to do. But we have to remember Republicans don't need to defeat all of them, right? They need that net gain of one seat. And that's why I continue to believe that Republicans have the upper hand because they don't have to run the table on these competitive races.
2: And August is a month, as Kyle mentioned, packed with primaries or runoffs in 16 states, including Tuesday in Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, and Washington State. And I don't want to leave out Tennessee's uh, Thursday primary next week, Um, always have been unusual. Uh, But Nathan, what are some of the more consequential or compelling primaries you're watching, uh, either in August or, you know, more specifically next week in those states I mentioned?
1: I think one of the marquee ones has been that Missouri Senate race. Uh, There's been so much attention on whether former Governor Eric Greitens uh, would win the nomination and how much of a headache that would be for Republicans in a Republican state, in a Republican environment. Uh, but now there's multiple pieces of data that show that Greitens is in third place right now. Um, there was a super PAC that came in specifically not to boost another candidate, but specifically to bring down Greitens. It looks like that has been effective. And now it looks like a two-way race uh, between uh, State Attorney General Eric Schmidt and Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler. So... Uh, some of the suspense has been taken out of out of the primary, but it's still important because this is a state that or a seat that Republicans shouldn't have to worry about. And uh, in the end, they may not have to worry. There is a primary on the Democratic side. Uh, we'll see whether it's uh, Trudy Bush Valentine or uh, Lucas Kuntz, and they've been on the air attacking each other. But really, if it's not Eric Greitens, then Republicans shouldn't have a a problem holding that in November. There's the Arizona Senate primary uh, that has been uh, increasingly uh, nasty. We always use that word. I guess that's uh, increasingly personal and divisive. Uh, I would say you know Blake Masters and Jim Layman, uh are are the, the two front runners, um, but we can't. Completely ignore the state attorney general there, uh, Mark Brnovich. He started as the front runner. He had the highest name ID. He's not viewed as the most charismatic candidate, but because layman and masters have been attacking each other, you know, maybe there are people who just are, say, hey, there needs to be another alternative.
0: It's happened before. It's happened before in other states where the third place candidate shoots up to the top because the front two uh, hit each other.
1: And, and Arizona also has that gubernatorial primary between. Uh, between Lake and, and Karen Taylor Ropeson, uh, that is, those are that's a key a key primary uh, as well, and a, and a host of House races. But yeah, to me, it's like choosing between my children; they're all kind of my my favorite uh, favorite races.
2: And we've also got four special U.S. House elections in August: uh, in Minnesota on the ninth, Alaska on the sixteenth, and then two in New York uh, on the twenty-third. Uh, these th- these things tend to get outsized attention, as you know in Um, election years. Um, What should we be watching there? Will any of these elections uh, be canaries in the coal mine that have any predictive value ahead of the nationwide November 8th vote?
1: Yeah, we'll see. Uh, uh, I, you know, the special election that already happened in Nebraska, caused by Jeff Fortenberry's uh, resignation, uh, was interesting because I I feel it was post- Dobbs' decision post Roe v. Wade uh, reversal, the Democratic candidate overperformed, and the narrative was, well, it was it was because of the Supreme Court. And I'm, I'm open to that possibility, but we really don't have a lot of specific data uh, showing that, that that was really the motivation for voters behind it. We don't have exit polling in House special elections, although we all, at least the three of us, wish we did. Uh, and so when we, when we go forward with these specials, uh, you're right. Absolutely right, Greg, that it, they're going to get outsized attention, but I'm just still so cautious in extrapolating too much from those. Um, one of the the more interesting one, I think the one to replace Delgado is interesting and the Minnesota special is also interesting. But the Alaska one, just by nature of having Sarah Palin in it, is fascinating. Uh, she did finish first ahead of the field in the top four, but it, I, I think Begich uh, probably has the advantage. My colleague Jacob Rubaskin has been writing about uh, Alaska e- extensively, and he, months ago, was talking about, you know, Palin with name ID, crowded field, probably finished first, but how Begich was actually well-positioned. And, and Begich, it throws me off because we all know so many Democratic candidates. There are so many Democratic politicians named Begich there, but this is the Republican
2: Begich uh, that's running in this particular race. And of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump in January 2021, six are seeking or sought re-election. Two have faced the primary voters, David Valadeo of California, who narrowly advanced to the general election, and Tom Rice of South Carolina, who was decisively defeated. I was wondering how you might assess the re-election prospects of any of the others. You've got uh, Peter Meyer in Michigan coming up, um, Jamie Herrera-Butler and Dan Newhouse in Washington State. That's a top two primary, also on August the 2nd. Liz Cheney is the last of the 10 um, and the last of those six seeking re-election to face the voters. That's on August the 16th. In Meyer's race, as you know, we've heard a lot about Democratic meddling in this uh, Republican primary. Um, but what are your thoughts about those uh, those remaining uh, House Republican Trump impeachers who have yet to face the primary voters?
1: Yeah, in all of these cases, and I'll say all races in general, you'd rather have more data than, than less data Uh primaries are difficult to poll, uh but when you if you were to pin me down which you kind of are right now virtually twisting my arm um i think congressman meyer in michigan is an underdog heading into the primary at this point i would be surprised if he won uh in washington state Uh, i've been led to believe by sources who are following the race closely that both newhouse and herrera butler are in good shape to make the top two um you know, Newhouse might end up facing a Democrat uh, in the, uh, you know, a Democrat finishing one and two with him setting up the, the general election. Uh, we'll see what happens with Herrera Butler, but she does face multiple Republican candidates, multiple Republican challengers trying to make the case against her that she's not, uh, you know, no longer suited for the Republican Party. But again, I, I think she's, I think she's going to at least make the top, make the top two in that Washington State's system, and then I I expect Cheney to lose the Tom Rice primary in South Carolina. Him getting about twenty five percent as an incumbent is just kind of both stunning and an indication of the appetite for uh for being anti Trump or or voting to impeach Trump. And and Cheney has been far more outspoken than what Tom Rice has been. Right? She has been a, a leader. In 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 opposing Trump, or at least trying to hold him accountable for uh, for his actions, particularly on January sixth. Uh, so I I would be surprised if she won. Uh, she's clearly I think fine with the decision, fine with the decisions that she's made. But we'll see what the future holds for her uh, post uh, serving in Congress.
0: Yeah, and as unsurprising as that results probably going to be. I think that'll still be the headline of the month um, amid all these other things happening. So, um, all right. Uh, I think we'll have to leave it there. Thank you, Nathan, uh, as always, for coming back on the pod. Um, I hope we can bring you on again in the fall. Uh, And I want to tell our listeners to go subscribe to his newsletter at InsideElections.com. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. This
1: is Down Valley Counts.
0: That's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020 before endorsing Joe Biden. Down Ballot counts produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstead and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you soon. Have you ever thought to yourself, How is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists, covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law Newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.